0: It is an immense privilege that we have to come and to open up the pages of your word. For you have spoken to men over a 1,500-year period in three different languages to give us a record of how you have worked in human history on how we can get to know who you are. But most of all, we get to see that unified theme from the beginning to the end of the redemptive plan that you have given to us to have our sins completely forgiven through the only way that it could be through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to the Father but through you. And so we ask through your Spirit to give us the ability to understand the text that we have and to the ability to put it into practice in our life so that when we leave this place, our lives can be one in which we can not only see your hand at work, but also put your glory on display for the change of life that you have given to us. So use this time, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, please open it up to Genesis chapter 49. If you did not bring your Bible, please take one of the Pew Bibles and turn to page 40. Because we're going to be looking at some key verses this morning to where I want you to be looking at. Because we've been looking at Genesis chapter 40, Joseph is on his deathbed. He only has a few moments left to live. And he's essentially saying his last words to his 12 sons. Chapter 49 is essentially the blessings that he gives to each one of his 12 sons. And as we have said before, this is a very prophetic passage. For the bulk of Genesis is a narrative to where it gives us um, a list of events um, that has taken place. But now, through the Spirit of God, is um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Jacob is speaking in a prophetic way to where he's looking ahead. Some of which is 400 years ahead, some of which is um, a number of thousands of years ahead. And we've we've seen 11 of these blessings in which he gives to his 12 sons, and we have one left. And that's the life, uh, that's the blessing of Joseph. So as we have been uh, looking at since chapter 37 until now, we are in the story of Joseph, which we have said since the beginning really isn't about Joseph, but it is God's providential work through Jacob's life to bring about his providential plan to his people. So it's really has been through Jacob and his sons, God has been using Joseph to bring Judah into preeminence because since the opening chapters of Genesis, there has been a promised one, a promised seed who would bring about redemption, to where he would crush the serpent's head and so that plan of redemption has been unfolding continues to unfold until you get to the new testament where that promised passover land comes and he gives his life as a um, sinless lamb and so we get to see now uh, jo- it is joseph's turn to where he gets to hear his father's blessing towards him And so Jacob has probably been looking at each one of his sons, probably directly in his eye, as he bestows these blessings, and so now it is Joseph's turn. So I'm sure he looks at Joseph, and Joseph looks squarely at him and and begins to wonder what his blessing is going to be about. And it's interesting, because as I prepared this entire chapter, many of the commentators have let me down because whoever um, have preached through the book of Genesis or wrote about the book of Genesis, they get very vague when it comes to Genesis chapter 49. And so there's uh, only been um, uh, a number of different uh, men who have uh, helped me, and I'm very dependent upon my sources, because as we have seen, uh, we have pro- uh, poetic languages to where it gives us... Uh, images or pictures or symbols because of that. And so these uh, pictures describe a greater picture. And so we come to Joseph's blessing. And let me just read the passage for us, and we'll begin to unpack things. Look at verse 22, as uh, as Jacob gives Joseph his blessing. Verse 22, we find, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over a wall. the archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm. His arms were agile. From the mighty hands well, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your Father, who helps you. And by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings from the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father, have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the most utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides his spoil. And lastly, look at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. And so as we come to this portion of Jacob's blessing, we see that with Joseph... It covers five verses, many of which, as you begin to look in, in your Bible, there's like only two or three. Only the other one with Judah, the one who, who gained preeminence in the family, has one extra line than what Joseph has. And so there's a number of things for us to, to being look at because there's, uh, there's some emphasis that Jacob is trying to make. And basically, when you begin, begin to look at verses 22 through 24, it breaks down into three parts. In the first two verses, we find the summary of Joseph's life. And then in verses 24 to the middle of verse 25, we see the God of Jacob's life. And then in the last part of verse 25 through 26, we see the blessings in Joseph's life. And so those are going to be the three sort of coat hangers where we're going to be um, hanging our thoughts upon. But basically, this is Jacob's blessing for Joseph. Not only does it affect him, but it will affect his descendants thereafter. And so as we know from uh, chapter 37, Jacob loved his son Joseph. Not, not only does he give him the double portion which corresponded to the, uh, that blessing of the inheritance going to Ephraim and Manasseh, but also we see that blessing being extended here as part of his final words to his sons. And as things begin to unfold, we find out that these verses is more about God than it is about Joseph himself. Though it encompasses elements of Joseph's life, it begins to show how God has worked in Joseph's life. And so the entire story of Joseph, beginning in chapter 37, we see Joseph basically having a God-centered, a God-dominated life. Because as his life has begun to unravel in many people's eyes, if you had to go through those same things, God was always there. His life was dominated with God because as those elements begin to go bad, all he had was God. And so we shall see that either you give in or you cling to God. And with him, he he decided to cling to God. And so how this should all be a testimony for all of us as our faith begin to grow in him. And so our life should be more about God than essentially ourselves and our own desires. And so when you examine what Joseph had to endure, many of us probably would have just given in. Because as we shall see, it wasn't because Joseph had some kind of special ability to go through all of the hardships. Because we saw that his life was a hard, difficult life for the majority of his life, and how he suffered so unjustly. He didn't deserve anything because he didn't cause those things. Things happened to him. How he was betrayed by his brothers, how he was sold into slavery, he was brought to a foreign land and separated from his family, how he was falsely accused, he was condemned for a crime he did not commit, and how he was forgotten in prison for years. And so all of this happened to him. There was no court of appeal for him to go to to plead his case, to plead his innocence. He had to endure those hardships, those difficulties. And yet through it all, there was one constant element. I want you to go back to chapter 39 for a moment. And these verses aren't going to be on the screen for I forgot to give it to them, so I I apologize. But in Genesis chapter 39 we begin to find out that as things begin to unravel, the Lord was with Joseph. Four times this is told to us by Moses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 49. Joseph has just been taken into slavery. He's been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, the Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguards, body bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And because of that, the next part of the verse, the result of that is he was a successful man. Look at verse 3. And his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph. And how because of that, the next part of verse gets into that he prospered Joseph. Jump down to verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him, gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And then in verse 23, we see the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with Joseph. That is the key. God was with Joseph because Joseph walked with God. He had nothing else to cling to but God. There was no family that he could go to. There was no counselors. There was no one there but God. All of the previous security that he had was taken away. He never saw himself as a victim. He never wanted to crawl under a rock and give up. But the thing that is implied here is that he walked with God, and God was the center of his life, no matter if it was in the good time, but especially during the bad time. Because this could be the only reason how he could endure such difficulty. God had to be the foundation for his life. God had to be the pillar that held Joseph's life together. That solid foundation, and his world seemed to be shifting under him. God was that foundation to make him stand firm. And so, though in Deuteronomy chapter 6, though it wasn't written yet, I believe he at least understood the principle of the Shema of putting God first. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and verse 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. And that's where Joseph had to be. Because how could one endure such hardship, such difficult circumstances, unless there was something outside of that, and that was God. God was his security, and so that should be like each one of us, like Joseph, because we plan to have everything go smoothly in our life, but each one of us can testify to the fact that that never happens. Life never goes through smoothly. There's potholes and there's smooth sailing. There's mountain climbs and, and valleys to, to get out of. Life can be very hard. It's different for each one of us. But there's one thing that we know. We all will face hardships. We all will face trials. We all will face some kind of persecutions. And so either we can say we trust God, not only in the good times, because that's easy to trust in God, but also in the extreme, difficult, hard times, because those times will come. There will be times when sorrow will overwhelm you, There will be times where confusion will blur your decision-making. There will be times when you will just want to surrender and give up. But God will always be there. God will never forsake you. And so that is that aspect to where we get to see in Joseph's life, as uh, chapter 49 begins to unfold his blessing, God is there. And so let's look at the first element in verses 22 and 23 as this begins to unfold about Joseph's God-centered life. And that in two verses, we get to see a summary of Joseph's entire life. So if you want to summarize Joseph's life from chapter 37 to basically now, you get two verses for it, but you did not know that. And so the imagery that is going to be found here, the symbol, the picture, are twofold. We're first going to see a vine, and the second is a picture of an archer. So in verse 22, we see that first element, and it's going to be an agricultural image of a vine in which it grows grapes. So look at verse 22. Joseph begins his blessing by saying, Joseph, and I'm sure Joseph begins to listen, And he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A bough is a a vine, it's just another word. A fruitful bough by a spring, its branches run over a wall. It's it's interesting there because that word bough is actually used 3,600 times in the Old Testament. You may be thinking, well, okay, I don't remember seeing vine all that much. I know it's there, but i don't remember well the actual hebrew is different it doesn't say bow it doesn't say vine this is a picture that is describing something else the actual word there is son and so joseph well jacob is telling his son joseph joseph you are a fruitful son so if you have a margin in your bible and if you look like my bible says we see the little word son So the question comes, how in the world did the the commentators give it the word vine if it says sun? Well, once again, it's a picture which is describing something else. And so the context is going to be uh, used to give us what that picture is. And so the commentators, like we find here, give us the image being projected, not the actual word. And so at face value, Joseph is saying, Joseph... You are a prolific son. You are a fruitful son. And that's what the word fruitful means. It means prosperous, productive, prolific. And so God has given Joseph an inner drive, that whatever task he is given, that he fulfills that aspect to the best of his ability. So whether or not it was for his father in the opening section of chapter 37, or with Potiphar, given the responsibility for his household, or even the jailer. He, he was given the responsibility to run the jail, or even with Pharaoh, being coming prime minister and given the responsibility to run the entire country. Joseph focused on whatever task was in front of him, and he fulfilled them. And so though he may have had some natural abilities to assist him with this, the principle of whatever task he had, that's what he accomplished with the abilities that he had. And so God gave him a more uh, privileged task, but he, he fulfilled those tasks to that best of ability. And so this bow aspect really comes from the next two parts of the verse, where it gets translated as bow or vine. And so look at the next part. The fruitful bough is by a spring, all right? And so, um, and so this fruitful sun is the literal there is by a spring. It's by um, a pool of water in which it gives nourishment and uh, water to the plants that are around it. So we begin to get a glimpse of how it's translated a vine. Well, there's one more step If you you look at the next part of the verse, it says its branches run over a wall. And so there's a picture of a secluded garden to where um, this prolificness is well watered and it goes over a wall. Difficulty here is when you go back to the Hebrew, that word branches is actually the word daughter. Because you may have jumped ahead, and while you were finding the word son, you also saw the word daughter. And so it says in the Hebrew, its daughter runs over a wall. All right? But if you take all all of the different clues, the prolificness, the spring, the wall, it's a picture of a vine, a vine in which it produces grapes. Not just a few grapes, but a prolific amount of grapes. So much so that even in times of drought, that prolificness is still there. Not just so, it goes far beyond where the plant is, over and up and over the wall. And so that's where the translators get the word and the word picture of of a vine. And so Jacob is telling Joseph that his life is one in which it will be very prolific it will be one in which is very prosperous, even in times of drought, and his influence gets to spread up and over where he is at into places to where he had never intended. And so that's Joseph. His influence is spread far beyond himself. And so the picture is that Joseph is one in which he is fruitful, he is prosperous, he is busy at whatever task there is. He's not lazy. He's not passive. He finishes those tasks given to him. And so whether or not it was for his father doing the report, he accomplished it. Whether or not it was managing Potiphar's house, he did it. Organizing the prison, it was done. Managing an entire country, being second in charge, it was there. And so he is a fruitful bough, which his influence far went beyond himself. And so he is a hard worker, completes those tasks, whatever they are to where it amazes those around us. And so should we be like Joseph in that respect to where whatever task that we have, whether or not it's home or in the workplace, it just gets done. There's no complaints. He just does it. He's a fruitful vow, and our influence goes far beyond that. But Jacob doesn't stop there with the imagery because Joseph's life is far more than how he was being used by God. We also find in verse 23 that not only is he a vine, but he is an attacked warrior. Look at verse 23. It says, The archers bitterly attacked him. So we go from an agricultural picture to a military picture, one in which there are archers that are out there and they're shooting arrows at him, trying to attack him. The Hebrew word there for attacked means to show bitterness, and so the translators give us this aspect that the archers bitterly attacked him. It's more than just the occasional attack; there was an attack of great bitterness. And so it paints us a picture that there were those um, assaulting Joseph's life, and it was constant. It was was a hardship for him. And we know through uh, Joseph's story that his brothers attacked him with lies and evil, harsh words. Potiphar's wife attacked him through a false allegation of sexual impropriety. Potiphar attacked him by taking Joseph, who he probably knew was innocent, and threw him into prison. And so Joseph had gone through the first part of his life under constant attack. And these attacks were unjust. They were malicious. But yet God was with Joseph. And so look at the next part of the verse. It gives us a, a glimpse of this attack. It says that these oppressors shot at him and harassed him. It gives us the extent of what these attacks are. They tried to do great harm to Joseph. And so the, the picture here, if there are archers shooting arrows at him, trying to wound him, trying to kill him, trying to call, cause great damage to him. That word harassed Is the Hebrew word meaning to hate? They were trying to um, cause him great damage by hating him. The same Hebrew word is used in Job chapter 30 and verse 21, in which we find there the word is translated as being persecuted. And so these are more than just unkind words, they're hateful words, harsh words, words of persecution. And they were done by his brothers, by Potiphar's wife, Potiphar himself. On all fronts is the picture. And so that's the description we have here. A picture of archers firing hateful, evil arrows. But yet we find his response in verse 24 begins with a contrast. But. So these things are happening to him, but. And what's his butt? His bow remained firm. His arms remained agile. Joseph fought back. Joseph was battle ready for when this took place. It's a picture of him taking up his bow and self-defending himself. So this is not going to be a response of retaliation. I'm going to get even with them, but it's more of an aspect of self-defense. And we see that he takes up his bow, which remains firm. And so as he grabs his bow, his arms and his handling of it is strong. It's firm. And so that's the aspect of the Hebrew word here, meaning enduring, permanent, constant. And so his bow is firm as these harsh arrows come at him. And his his skillfulness with this, his arms were agile, meaning limber, or he's quick to respond. And so this is the picture of Joseph. He had the strength and quickness to fire back as these arrows are being hurled at him. And so he did not collapse emotionally. He didn't retreat. He didn't give up. We see that throughout his life he's been faithful each time God has put him into a harsh situation because the Lord was with him. That was his focus. And so his arms were uh, supple, flexible, skillful. And so it's a picture for each one of us also, because we're going to handle these great difficulties too. Maybe not to the extent as as himself, but they are still harsh and hard sometimes. Last week I gave you a great opening line for a novel, and I have another one. In high school I had to read A Tale of Two Cities. And A Tale of Two Cities opens up with, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And that's a description of our life. There will be good times. There will be bad times. It's just a part of life. The preacher in the Song of Solomon tells us exactly that too in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 as we went through that with Pastor Joey. There we find there is, a, there is an appointed time for Everything. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down. There's a time to build up. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. And there's a time to dance. That's life. We go through hard times, but yet there are good times. It's been said if we didn't go through hard times, we wouldn't appreciate those good times, and I think that's, that's true. But yet there's a great lie that is being taught out there in the Christian airwaves to where if we just name and claim our situation, God will deliver us from those things. If you're going through hard times and you feel the great weight of the world, that's your fault because you're, you don't have the faith for God to get you out of that. And that's a lie. God gives us hard, difficult times for a reason. He wants us to emphasize a trust in him despite the situation, to depend on him no matter what takes place. Because the Christian life, it is a bed of roses. But those roses got thorns. You can appreciate them, but you will get cut at some point. And so these two images of joseph reveals the good times along with the bad times both the success and the failures the victories and the deceits sometimes there may seem like some steps forward with some steps backwards because the christian life is not easy there could be a lot of tears of joy that come along times in which there are tears of sorrow And so what Jacob Jacob is saying about Joseph is so true for myself or for you as well. It's how we handle those tough times, those difficult times, those times in which we may be overwhelmed. And so these two verses is, is really a summary of Joseph's life that Jacob gives to us in just two verses. But yet it doesn't stop there. Because if it stopped there, all we could say, Joseph had the natural ability to do it himself. And that's not where it is. And if you leave this place stating that, okay, I just have to trust God more, or um, I have to do something, then you're leaving with the wrong emphasis. The emphasis is not how you can overcome those things. It's God. God is the focus of Joseph enduring those tough arrows being hurled at him. So it's not going through some another kind of seminar or some kind of conference that's going to equip you to overcome your current situation, but it's God. And so in verses, uh, the middle part of verse 24, going down to the middle part of verse 25, we're going to find Joseph's security. We're given five names for God mentioned here. And so Joseph lived a God-centered, a God-dominated life, and Jacob is going to give us a description of God in these couple of verses. And so he wants to remind Joseph and others who come after him that it is all by God and God alone. And so look at the middle of verse 24. We find the first name for God. We find that from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. We find the first title and description of God. This is going to emphasize God's power. He is the mighty one. And it's interesting because the beginning part of that verse, we find from the hands of the mighty one. Why mention hands here? Because it goes back to the picture of the archer. As Jacob is picking up his bow, getting ready to fire back his arrows, God is the one who is strengthening him to do that. It's actually the hands of God that gives him that strength. Because if it was himself, he would eventually get tired. But it is God who gives him the strength. It is God who is his trust that he has in. Not just his own hands and his ability, but it is God because he is the mighty one. It was God who helped Joseph prevail. It was God who made all of the difference. And so we should all be able to look back at our own lives and through some of the hardships that we have gone through and that maybe we too could say, if it wasn't for God, where would I have been today? But that continues. It doesn't stop there. There will be another trial. There will be another situation. For some of us, it may be a difficult health situation that we're enduring. Some of us, maybe our work situation is difficult. Maybe our marriage situation, our family situation. Could be that pesky financial situation that's always there. But regardless of whatever situation that you may be in today, God is there. He is the mighty one. He's the all-powerful one. He is the El-Jedi that is being described here. It is God who is able to get you through that. He is able to be the one to hold you up in those difficult times. So if you get to the place where you're feeling like you're walking in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, and you cannot see where, which is going to be the next step, you're unable to see the end of the destination, you have nowhere to turn or nowhere to go, you can trust in God, the mighty one. He is there. He is able to get you through. But yet in the next part of verse 24, we find the second name of God being used here. The second title for God is from there is the shepherd. Not only God is the mighty one, but he is also the shepherd. And we've seen this before in the, in the previous chapter, uh, this word being used, and we've seen this as we walk through in John chapter 10, where Jesus is the good shepherd. And so I don't want to spend too much time here, but that aspect of a shepherd, we need to be reminded of at all times, because it emphasizes God's caring tenderness that he has for his sheep. And so when difficult, suffering times come, there is a shepherd. A shepherd is compassionate, he's tender, he provides for his sheep, he protects them, he guides them. When one of them gets lost, he goes out to find them. He knows his name of each one of his sheep. He's caring. When there's a need, he fulfills that in the lives of the sheep. So much so that even he lays down his life for his sheep. And so God is being described here as a shepherd. Now, you may not have thought uh, too much about being a shepherd, but there is a difference between one who shepherds sheep and one who is in control of cattle. Because if you ever have to drive cattle to a different place or a different location, you're in the back, and you have to push the cattle in a certain direction. But a shepherd leads the flock for them. And so the picture, one of the pictures that we get from being a shepherd is that to get to the sheep, you have to go through the shepherd if you're an enemy. And so a shepherd is always there. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 23 in verse 1, passage you all know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, because he is there to provide everything that we need. We also saw in John chapter 10 how Christ is that good shepherd, so much so that no one can pluck him out of God's hands or his hands, and that he knows all of his sheep by name. And God has been there for Joseph during those difficult times, shepherding him, leading him. Even when he did not know that God was um, where he was leading, his trust and faith was still in the shepherd. But yet in the last section of verse 24, we find a third name of God. We find the stone of Israel. This name is going to emphasize God, God's unchangeability, his the sturdiness. And so God is being described for his firmness, his solidness. The, that comes with a stone. And so there's just certain words I just can't say, and it gets stuck, so I'll jump over it. And so when Joseph's life was in constant state of change and shifting, God was there being unmovable. God was there giving him a firm foundation to stand on. I want you to keep your finger here, but turn on over your Bible to uh, Psalm 118. It's not going to be on here because I added it. The last minute this morning, but in Psalm 118, I want you to look at a couple of verses. Psalm 118 in verse five, uh, verse five, we have a messianic passage, and we get to um, to find this where the psalmist was in a similar situation as Joseph, a time of great hardship. In verse five, we have, "For my distress, I called upon the Lord, and look what happened." The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. That's that firm foundation. Verse 6, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. Even the psalmist can say, when I'm walking with the Lord, there's nothing for me to fear because I'm in a firm place. Look at verses 8 and 9. There is a place that he can go which is secure. Verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. And then he repeats himself, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And so that is how God was with Joseph. He gave him a firm foundation to stand on. But it's, in, but it's interesting. Look at verse 22 of Psalm 118. Because this a picture of a stone goes a little bit further, I believe. Because the psalmist writes in verse 22 that the stone was the stone the builder rejected and it has become the chief cornerstone. This should sound very familiar. Because Peter is going to quote, quote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, comparing Christ in his death as being the chief cornerstone for the church that the builders rejected. And so this cornerstone, as you already know, because we talk about things a lot sometimes, is a great picture for us to be reminded that this cornerstone was that key element to make the entire building square, plumb, to keep it from falling down. And so all of its measurements would be measured by this one stone. That would be the first stone that is laid at the foundation. If this stone wasn't perfect, after its inspection from, from the stone masons, um, who knows in which, how the building would last. And so the walls and the roof and all of the components of the building would be aligned to this chief corner stone. And so the inspector w- would come and inspect the stone for the building, and if it was perfect, if it was perfectly plumb and straight, it would be used. But if it had some kind of flaw, it would be cast aside for another, which, w- which would be more acceptable. And so that's how Peter looks at Christ as being the, uh, the, the chief cornerstone as he quotes this one passage. God came along And took the cornerstone that the uh, builders, that the religious leaders of Israel rejected and made Christ that chief cornerstone. This stone was cast aside for another stone of their own making. But God makes him that foundation, that centerpiece for the entire church. And so everything that the church does is focused on Christ. Every song that we sing, every prayer that we give, every message that we preach is a message of why Christ came, who he is, how he paid for our sins upon the cross, how he satisfied the wrath of God and is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. So, this is the stone of Israel, this is the foundation. Though Joseph didn't fully understand the the word picture going on there of this foundation, it was still God. But that foundation is Christ. He is the one who gives us the ability to stand firm. And so no matter what situation or problem you may ever go through, God is the one who gives gives us that foundation when the entire world seems like is just shifting all around us. There is a foundation that will never change because it's solid. Because God doesn't change. And so in the way that God worked with Abraham in the way that he worked with David in the way that he worked with the apostles, he will work with you today. He will give you a firm foundation. But yet, he goes on. There are two more names that are mentioned here. In verse 25, we have the fourth name being mentioned, the God of your father. And so if you begin to look at um, the verses that we have seen since verse 25, this is actually the third time Jacob is mentioning himself. We have the Mighty One of Jacob, we have the Stone of Israel, and now we have the God of your fathers. It's the third reference. It's interesting because each time Jacob looks at himself... But yet the stone of Israel, the picture is um, a little larger for the entire aspect of God's people. But yet there's a personal aspect here. Not just there's a God who is out there, but He is my God, the God of your Father. Many commentators sort of um, underscore the fact that this is a humble way of naming Himself here. It's very similar to how the Apostle John wrote his books, because you have to get to the book of Revelation where John even mentions himself by name. But if you go to the Gospel of John or uh, the, his first epistle or his second epistle, his third epistle, he doesn't mention himself by name. He may call himself the beloved one, but um, he doesn't mention himself. There's an aspect that he um, doesn't want to shine light on himself and be the center of the writing. And so this aspect of humility may be coming out here and here we have a name of god which is the word El, which can mean the strong one the mighty one the powerful one it reinforces what has already been said that god is the all-powerful sovereign one his name emphasizes his faithfulness from one generation to to the next that he doesn't change That's exactly what uh, Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 6 underscores. For I, the Lord, do not change. And so he's there for everyone who to turn to him in the same aspect. No matter what time or, uh, uh, one of God's people has lived, they were there. And because of that, the God of your father, look at the end of verse 25. Who helps you? I have that underlined in my Bible. I can tend to forget to the extent that God is there to help me. In those hard situations, God is there. It pictures that God is not distant, but he is close. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Joey talked about God's transcendence in his imminence. God is transcendence, as you remember from a couple of weeks ago, that God is out there. No matter where you could go, God is there. Even if you had the ability to go to the uttermost part of the universe, God would still be there. He is trans- um, transcendent. He is high. He is lifted up. He's out there. He's all-powerful. But yet at the same time, God is very close. He is imminent. So much so that when a person comes to faith in Christ, we have the third person of the Trinity to come to be the down payment, to be the pledge who makes home in us and indwells us and empowers us, he teaches us, and he is there. That's how close God is to us. He is close. So when times get to feel very dark, you don't have to feel alone because God is there. And then there's a fifth name for God as we speedily go, because time is is fleeting. The fifth name for God is the Almighty, by the Almighty who blesses you. Now, there is some issues with how we can translate this. One can translate it as the El Jedi again, even though it's been already mentioned. But many commentators sort of lean on the fact that there's a play on words that is being uh, meant here that there's a better way to translate this. And we did this all the time in our Hebrew class. We'd be going through uh, the the Old Testament and looking at our English translation and go, boy, that's bad. How'd they get that? And this is like one of those times, I think, to where we find the God Almighty who blesses you. The root word that we find there for Almighty means a woman's breast, And so because of the context in which we find uh, this word being mentioned, because in the last part of verse 25 is part of the um, immediate context, blessings from the breast and of the womb is being talked about. So if this is true, God would be the Almighty One who is tender as as a mother nursing her child, who gives them nourishment in which they can be satisfied and sustained that would fix, that that would be just as as apt. And so commentators don't know. If you want to call the Almighty One who blesses you, God is all-powerful. If you want to say that He is a tender God who satisfies um, and sustains, that fits too. But God is at work, and the point here is that He is the one who blesses. And this begins to um, give us our third section, that those are five names for for God which describe God is actively at work on who he is, so that when those dark time comes, he is there and you can put your complete trust in him. But look what he does, and we forget this part. We find who blesses you. In verse uh, uh, 25 here, and uh, throughout 26, the word blessing or blesses is used uh, six times, five of which are plural. The emphasis is God lavishly blesses his people. And it's more than just a physical element, because not every, every believer is monetarily wealthy, but there's an aspect of spiritual blessing. And that aspect to where it, there's a picture of God is lavishing out his blessing upon his people. Look what uh, the verse goes on to say. Blessings from heaven above. The word heaven there means, literally means heights, and the word of above even goes further than that. God blesses through the height of heights. It's lavish. That's where God dwells, in the heavens. And these blessings are not of this world. They come from God. Almost like a picture of a waterfall just continually giving um, giving one water. That's where God is from the heights, just pouring down upon Joseph's life, blessing. But it doesn't stop there on God's blessing. But look at the next part. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Now, once again, the Hebrews not necessarily as clear because you may picture, oh, all right, water pours down from, from above and water bubbles up from the ground. That's, that was my first thought. But no, I was, I was wrong once again because uh, many times when you have poetic language, there's parallel, parallelism that goes on, meaning to understand something that you may not fully understand grasp, you have to look at the next part of the verse. The next part of the verse talks about blessings of the breast and of the womb. And so they go parallel together. And so Joseph, as what most commentators sort of point out, is that these blessings from, uh, that lies beneath is a picture of Joseph's wife bearing children. And through this bearing of children has an effect on the descendants of, of Joseph later on in the two tribes of Israel, the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. And so, w- once again, there's this picture of childbirth. And so, the blessings from deep within, deep within the body, and the blessings of the breast and of the womb. And so, during the days and age that we live in, many times children are, are not seen as a blessing. There are many couples that even choose not to have children, not because they don't want children, but because it's an inconvenience. They'd rather have a dog or a cat. But children are a blessing. Even the pre-born children are a blessing from God because they have immense worth, immense value. You don't have to turn here, but in Psalm 127, in verse 3, we have an image of how children are a blessing. It says, children are a gift from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. That's, once again, a military picture. A quiver is what holds the arrows. And so there's a picture of one who's going to have a bow to fire, and there's a quiver full of arrows. And blessed is the man who has a lot of arrows to shoot. And so that's the extension uh, of, of a man having a number of different arrows to go to a place where he cannot go. And so there's a picture of Joseph being blessed because it, be, it also gets into, in, in verse 26, into the next aspect of the blessing where, where Jacob begins to pray for Joseph. We find the blessing of your father has surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. His ancestors was Abraham and Isaac. They had some children, but they didn't have that, that many. Jacob had 12 sons. He was blessed, and he was blessed immensely, and his heart is filled with joy and gladness because of that. So much so, it surpassed my father. It surpassed my grandfather in the blessings of the children that we have. So much so, look at the next part of verse 26, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. It's almost like a picture of a cup that you're filled with water, and it starts to overflow. And it just keeps on coming, and the cup keeps on overflowing. That's a picture of these hills. It's, the blessings are just bounding over the hills. It just keeps on coming. And so that's the extent of these blessings. And may they be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head to the one distinguished among his brothers. And so these blessings are pouring down upon Joseph as an example for all of God's people to, that trust in him to rely on his blessing and to see his blessing. And so that's Jacob's blessing to Joseph, to where he lavishes his blessing. He repeats his blessing, so much so there's an emphasis on it. But there's one passage in, in a few a couple minutes that I have left that I want you to look at. Go to Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 16. I want to just sort of close looking at this one aspect that I want you to burn into your memory. Not just that there are not only no second-class Christians, because everyone is important in God's sight when they come to faith in Christ. But also, many times we look at ourselves as being spiritual paupers. We need something else. But we have everything that we need. Paul begins um, the book of Ephesians in chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 3, where it talks about that God blesses us with every spiritual blessing. We have everything we need. In verse 7, talks about how we have the riches of his grace, which he lavishes on us. In chapter 2 and verse 4, talks about God being rich in mercy. We could look at those, but we looked at that last time, I think. But, um, but in verse 16, I want to focus on this aspect, on how God lavishes his blessing on you through spiritual power, the ability to stand strong and to walk with him. In verse 16, it says that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's a great verse because it tells us God is strengthening us with with spiritual power. But I want you to focus on the, the phrase according to. That's very important. God blesses us according to who he is. Because if you're giving away money, you can either give out of your wealth or give according to your wealth. So I want you to picture in your mind for a moment a billionaire. It could be Elon Musk. It could be Bill Gates. Whoever else comes to mind. Picture them. If you met them and he he came up to you and shook your hand and he gave you a check. I want to help you. And that check was for $100. He's giving you money but he's giving it out of his wealth is just there. There, I think this will help. But if he gave in proportion to his wealth, there's some commas in there. It's not just $100, but he is giving in proportion to his wealth. That is what God does to us. And so if you go back to the verse, he gives in proportion to the riches in his glory to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. God is lavish to his people. And so if you begin to find yourself in the darkest of times, God is there, and he's blessing you. He gives you a firm foundation to stand on. And so as we begin to get our thoughts ready to partake at the table, maybe you are here and you've never made God the center part of your life in which he is dominating you. You may think that, that God, is, God is there, but it's really only one day a week, if that, maybe a couple times a month. But it's not, because you never completely put your faith and trust in Christ. Who are you known by, by your, by your co-workers? Are you known as that Christian who works down over there? Or you're just one of us? Just, just one of us? A believer's life will stand out. But maybe you are a believer, and there's this aspect to where you are in the middle of tough times. There is a time for us to be reminded that we have a firm foundation to stand on because God is there to lavish your blessings, even if it's a blessing to say, I'm here, I'm with you. But you know what? that part is overflowing. And that is the celebration that believers partake at the table because it's a picture of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection on the cross to where when his blood was shed, it brought about forgiveness of sin because he was the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as the men come forward this morning, I'm going to pray. And we're going to examine our hearts to see whether or not we are worthy. If we're not, we ask that you let these elements pass. Or if you're not a believer yet, look at the cross. See what Christ has done. Surrender your life to Christ. Confess your sin to him. And God will bring about a a reconciliation. He will bring about a forgiveness of sin. He will declare you righteous. He will give you eternal life. He will empower you with your spirit. He will change your life. But what he won't do is he won't make your life easy. Those are the trials that he brings about so you can learn to trust him more. So let's pray. Father, what a beautiful picture that we have to celebrate at this time because as we prepare to leave, we want to celebrate the Lord's death his burial, his resurrection. And because of what he has done, you have given us a firm place to stand in a world that is like shifting sand. And so no matter what happens, Father, no matter what arrows may be hurled our way, you are there to empower, to encourage, to show us where we are to walk in the valley of the shadow of death when that time comes, because you will give us firm footing to stand upon. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.